Let's get into this. We've got some things to go over today. Um, Chapter 14 is a very enigmatic chapter of Genesis. Enigmatic, that's a big word, isn't it? What's an enigma? Kind of mysterious, right? It's a riddle, right? It's kind of enigmatic because there's a guy that we are introduced here that we just don't have a lot of backstory on. We actually find out more about him later. The Psalms mention him once, but really the big piece about him is in Hebrews chapter 7, right? Who is that guy? Who's the guy we're going to get introduced to? He was the king and priest of Salem. His name is Melchizedek. Very strange guy, very enigmatic guy, and Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why would it tell us that? That's kind of strange. Why would he be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Why not a priest after the order of Levi? That was the priests in the New Te- or in the Old Testament, right? It's the lineage of Levi. So why wouldn't he be like that? Well, Melchizedek was a different kind of priest, and we're going to get into that. He was a different kind of priest, and he had a little different role. And we don't know a whole lot about him except that he was actually a person who existed, and he was a typology and a foreshadowing of the office that Christ would hold later. But there's more to it than that. Please remember, let's do a little review here. Please remember chapter 13. Chapter 13, remember, we had Lot and we had Abram. And they were getting so large that there was not enough land for all of their herdsmen and all of their people. By the way, that means there's a lot, right? In chapter uh, 14, we find out that that Abram mustered up an army of men who had been, quote, raised in his own home or born in his own home. And it was 318 people. So I want you to realize this. When Lot and Abram in chapter 13 are standing here looking at down at the valley of Sodom, basically. <clears throat> when they're standing looking at the valley and they're saying, hey, there's not enough room here to support us both. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. What Abram was not, he was not saying, we're just going to pick up our tent and move. It was a big deal. They're moving every, there's a lot of people involved here, right? Okay, it's not just a tent and a couple of sheep. It's an entire caravan of people. It was a very, very large, it was a big deal. And Abram deferred to Lot, who should have let Abram choose. Lot was the younger. Abram had taken care of him like he was his own child. And Lot basically spits in his face, right? I'll take the good stuff, you get the desert. That's what happens. At thir- that's, ex- that's just what we've just gone through. Okay? Abram has been spurned by Lot. He's been treated poorly by Lot. He's basically been poked in the eye by Lot. Lot says, I'll take the good stuff, you get the wilderness. And Abram says, fine, my trust is in the Lord. That is the setup for now where we're going, okay? That's the setup. Abram has just been basically spit on, poked in the eye, disrespected, if you will. In that culture, that was a huge deal. I know in our culture, we think it's no big deal. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal to God still. It was a killing offense in the Old Testament to slap your parents. It was a big deal. And that's basically what Lot has done. He hasn't slapped him physically, but he's basically spit on him, right? I'll take the good stuff. You get the leftovers, and I'm gone. Good luck to you, Abram. Thanks. Thanks for everything so far. Here's what it says. Let's start at verse 14 or verse 1 in chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Sorry, I'm now finding things in my pockets. This is what happens when you have three small children. Look what's in my pocket. I've got a 
don't know where it came from. Okay, sorry. Let's try this again. Chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Shinar. We don't, we don't hear that often. Today, we typically don't refer to it as Shinar. What do we usually call it? Babylon. It was Babylon or Babylonia, okay? So when, we, when you hear Shinar, think of Babylon. That's really what we're talking about. King of Shinar. Arioch, the king of Elisar. And here's the big guy. Kedor Leomer. What does he do? That's a mouthful, isn't it? Kedor Leomer, king of Elam. He's basically the leader of this group. Along with Tidal, king of Goem. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma. Shemeber, king of Zoam. Zeboam, I'm sorry, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Remember, Zoar was a very small city. All of these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Today, we don't typically call it the Salt Sea. What do we usually call it? The Dead Sea. It's the same thing, though, okay? However, in that day, the Salt Sea had a little different geography. We think, and that right now, today, if you look at the Dead Sea, there's a big peninsula that comes out from, okay, if I'm doing it from the way that you look at me, from the east. From the eastern edge of the Dead Sea. If the Dead Sea's here, there's a peninsula that comes out from the eastern edge. And we think that back in this time, that peninsula actually stretched all the way across so that basically the Salt Sea was the top two-thirds and the bottom third of what today is the Dead Sea was actually a place with a lot of pits in it. Bitumen is what some of the translations say, or tar pits. Um, that was used for sealants, right? You can make mortar out of it. You could seal boats up with it. So it was valuable substance, okay? That was what was going on. They all joined forces in this valley. Twelve years, these, these kings had served Kedor Leomer. They were in what is today we call a um, Suzerain Vassal Treaty. You ever heard of that? That's some big words too, isn't it? Suzerain or Suzerain Vassal Treaty. Basically what it was was this. If you had a big, strong king like Kedor Leomer... He would come to you if you were the king of, say, whatever, Zoar, and he'd say, look, bud, here's the deal. I'm the king of the much bigger, stronger city, and uh, you're going to play by my rules. And as long as you play by my rules, you can still be the king down here. But as soon as you don't, I will depose you, and I will install whoever I want as king over your city. Right? We're still in the time of basically city-states. So it'd kind of be like this. It'd be kind of like if the mayor of Oklahoma City came to Ada, and he said, hey, Ada, you think you're a big town, but you're not compared to me. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to play by my rules. You're going to give me a, a, some sort of, you know, treaty. You're going to give me some sort of uh, homage, right? I'm going to require you guys to pay me whatever. $10,000 a year, right? Says that to our mayor. And the mayor says, sounds good. Sounds fair. As soon as you don't, I'm bringing my military down here, and I'm going to show you who the real boss is. So what happened was for 12 years, they basically did that. In the 13th year, they rebelled. What that meant was this. We're not paying it anymore. So you wouldn't pay, and then you get all your guys, you get all your military forces, and you're like, we know they're coming, we just don't know when. That's pretty much what happened. They're waiting for the reprisal, right? They know it's coming. All right. <clears throat> Twelve years, this is verse 4, twelve years they had served Kedoleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedoleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtoreth, 
Karnam, Bezerzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, Kiratham, the Horites in the hill country of Sear, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to El Mishpat, that is Kadesh, which we know about. They defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, and here's what I want you to know about the king of Sodom. Sodom was not a small city. In the plains area where Sodom was, Sodom was really kind of the big city, okay? It'd be kind of like Ada today. Ada's kind of the big city, right? And there's lots of kind of smaller ones around it, right? We got Lada and Roth, Bing, right? That's kind of how it was with Sodom. Sodom was the big town, had all the happenings. I know Ada's not really a big town, but, you know, to further the analogy. And Zoar and these other places that were around it kind of relied on the hub of activity in Sodom. And so Sodom, the king of Sodom would have been, you know, kind of the big stick in the forest, if you will. Right? So he's kind of the leader here. Okay, verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar, went out and joined battle in the valley of Siddim. So here are these guys, and they're saying, look, we're not going to take it anymore. We're not going to send you tribute anymore. We're not going to let you reign over us anymore. <clears throat> we're going to break free. They miscalculated. They thought they had probably been planning it out for a year or two, right? Hey, hey, in a couple of years, we're throwing off the leash, boys. So we've got to get our forces. We've got to get ready. This is not something that they just did overnight. They knew battle would ensue if they didn't. But they miscalculated, and guess what happened? They lost. Verse 9, with Kedoliamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, bitumen or tar. Um, it's, it's a sealant, though, right? There's a reason that this is there. Why do we care about that? Because that's a natural resource. Here's another thing that that valley, that valley of Sodom holds. A lot of minerals that you can use and metals that you can use to make weapons or you can use to make implements. Is that, is that, uh, is that important? Is it valuable? Do people go to war over that today? Yeah. And people are going to war over it then, too. Why is it that these four kings, these big four kings, who are basically the kings of Babylon and that whole region, way up in the northeast, why do they want these guys paying tribute? Because if they control this region, they also control all the tar, which means all the sealants. They control the metal, which means the weapons of war, which means the implements. So it was a big deal. And they basically took their time. They decided, we're going to prove to these guys you should never rebel against us. I mean, not, we're not just going to conquer them. We're going to destroy them. And that's what happened. The valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. And so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all of their provisions, that means their food. In the King James, I think it says the victuals. Here in Oklahoma, we can't pronounce that word. We say vittles, right? Victuals means food. You ever heard of that? Now let's have some vittles. There's a C in that word. Just saying. The vittles, their food. They took their food. They took their people. They took their possessions. And they went their way. 
Why is that a big deal? They're basically making it so that if you stay here, you'll probably starve to death. You don't have any food. And we've got all your stuff. So you can't go plow the, the fields and make more food. By the way, that area is part of the Fertile Crescent. It is a very, very good place to farm. Okay? It's not a good place to farm if you don't have implements. And if you don't have animals, right? It's, it's going to be tough. You ever tried to farm a field by hand? So I was raised on a large farm, like 27,000 acres, really big farm. And I can remember one time we had a field where there was a few acres, like the field is probably 120 or better acres, and there's like an acre worth of weeds. And I was in high school. And so my uncle, who was basically running that part of the farm, he says, hey, I've got a job for you today. I'm like, okay. I get in the pickup, and he goes, we're going to go out to such and such field. He's like, bring a hoe. I'm like, what are we doing? Like a hand implement? Like, hey, we've got these huge spray rigs, right? We've got this tractor with a massive undercutter. Why, why, am, I, why am I taking a, a hoe? You'll see. Bring a jug of water. <laughs> oh, man. So I get out there and he goes, well, we don't want to, you know, it's going to take a lot of money in diesel to get the, the um, implements to do this all the way across the county to this field. It's cheaper for us to pay you. <laughs> fantastic <laughs> so i got to work with a hand tool one acre does not seem like much that's not a lot of weeds unless you're doing it by hand then it's a lot of weeds let me tell you something if you're if you're farming a field by hand it's real work and they knew that verse 11 so the enemy took all the possessions of sodom and gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way verse 12 they also took lot the son of abram's brother it's abram's nephew who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, time out. Last chapter, he wasn't dwelling in Sodom. Where was he? Well, he, just, he was in the fields outside of Sodom. He had pitched his tent toward Sodom. Man, look at that place. Isn't it beautiful? But he wasn't there yet. He just cast his longing eyes on it at the time. Have you ever done that with sin? Do we do that today? Well, I don't want to be involved in it too much. I just, want to, I just want to watch. I don't want to be involved in it too. I just want to taste just a little bit. just want to be around it. These are my people. Okay? There is a progression going on here, and Lot is now living in Sodom. He's not just pitching his tent. Now he's inside the city. And when war comes to Sodom, when judgment comes to Sodom, guess who gets swept up in it? Lot. Lot gets taken as a captive of war, and the one man who could basically keep him safe, he is just spit in his face and poked in the eye. He's in a bad place. You know what's incredible? The New Testament tells us Lot was a believer. Lot was a righteous man who made a very poor decision regarding sin. I wonder if you've ever done that. Could you be righteous and make a very poor decision regarding sin? Yes. Is there a price that you will pay for that? Yes. Did Lot pay a price? Yes, he did. Then one of them who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Notice, by the way, that's the first time he's called a Hebrew. That's because he's a descendant of a man named Eber. So he's from Hebrew. He's Eber. He's from Eber. That means Hebrew. 
Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner. These were the allies of Abram. So he's living, basically says this, he's living in this place where he's made some friends and they're allied with him. And they hear, hey, there's something bad going on with Abram and his family. We should go help him. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's more than 100 miles by foot or by animal. That's a long way. You know how this chokes me up? You know what most of us would do in that situation? Good. Got what was coming to him. That guy did me wrong. He talked about me. He talked the wrong stuff about me. He got what was coming to him. Abram didn't. Lot, whom he had basically taken care of as his own son, whom he has kept safe for years and years and looked over and watched over, is now in trouble, grave trouble, possibly deadly trouble. And what does Abram do? Immediately, I'll go to his aid. Can you imagine the talk in the tent that night? You'll what? I wonder what his wife said to him. I wonder what his family thought of that. You're about to go risk your life for somebody that basically spit in your face? Yeah, he's my family. Yeah, but he just did you wrong. He's bearing the punishment for his own sin. Do we think that? Someone does us wrong and they get what's coming to them? Do we think that? We do. We'll get high and mighty and we'll whisper about it and gossip about it. Well, you know why they got that? They had that coming to them. Let me tell you about one time when they disrespected me. God's paying them back. Maybe not. Maybe you don't even realize it, but God's testing your character. Abram could have stayed behind. Would anyone have blamed him if he said, oh, man, that's terrible. Hey, I pray for you. No. He's risking death. If his raid does not succeed, all of these men whom he loves and cares for and are taking care of all of his stuff will die. If they do, his family may perish. Who's taking care of the sheep? Who's taking care of the... You with me here? It's a huge risk. And Abram does it without thinking. That's my family. Let's go get him back. Takes his 318 men. These were good men. Born in his home. These were basically guys that have been his, his bodyguard, his shepherds, his workers. They were not soft. They lived in hard times, and they were tough, I'm sure, men. They went in pursuit as far as Dan. They went 100 miles in pursuit, more than 100 miles. Then he divided his forces against them by night. They went 100 miles, and then he says, hey, we're staying up all night to fight. They weren't sissies. Divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants. He defeated them and pursued them all the way to Hobah, north of Damascus. He put them on the run for a long way. These were the four most powerful kings in this time. And Abram is saying, we're going to go pursue them and fight them and take back Lot. Can you imagine what's in the, the heads of those men? Most of them probably thought they were marching to their death. We're going to go take on the four biggest, baddest dudes in their armies. Uh, we're just a bunch of, you know, shepherds. 
We're going. Why? Because a lot. Don't you remember Lot? Lot just hosed us, man. He just took the good stuff and gave us the bad. We're going after him? That's what we're going to go risk our life for? Yes. Yes, it is. You know what this is the exact opposite of? It's the exact opposite of what we see with Cain and Abel. What does Cain tell God when God says, hey, where's Abel, your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to look after him? You know what the rhetorical answer is? Yes, you are. What does Abram say? Well, heck with Lot. Am I my brother's keeper? It's not what he says. It does the exact opposite. Yeah, but Lot just spit in your face. You just had this big blow up. You had this big argument. He just was disrespectful to you. He's still my brother. He's still my family. He's in a tough time. Let him get what's coming to him. No, he's my brother. You may be laying your life down for him and he just spit in your face. He's my brother. He's worth the risk. Your Christian brothers are worth the risk even when you've had disagreements with them. No, he's my brother. He's my family. We're going. So they went. Guess what? Probably to the surprise of, I mean everyone, other than maybe Abram, they won. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and all the women and the people. Pretty sure they were probably pretty thankful because they were headed off into captivity as slaves. Would you be thankful? Would you be thankful if you were enslaved and someone came and rescued you out of it? I think I would be. Were you thankful when you were enslaved and Christ rescued you out of it? I think we should be. 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Well, what a foreshadowing. We're going to be taking that today. For he was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I'm the one that's made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. But let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. That was his allies that went with him. Remember, those are his friends. By the way, you must be some friend. When Abram goes, hey, guys, uh, these guys have kidnapped my kinfolk. And I'm taking my, my trained men, and we're going to go after them and fight them. Well, who is it? Cato Leomer? You know, the, the king of Babel? <laughs> I'll tell you something. Most friends and neighbors would be like, uh, good luck to you, man. These guys go, we'll go with you. In case you're not aware, that's called courage. 
Here's what's interesting to me. The king of Sodom came out to meet Abram. Melchizedek starts speaking. The king of Sodom, even the king of Sodom, who's a pagan, knows he needs to shut up and let Melchizedek talk first. Which he does. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. What do we call Salem today? It's not called Salem anymore. What's it called? Jerusalem. Yeah. He's the king of Jerusalem. We think when we read the Old Testament that Abram is the only person that knows God. And that is not true. Melchizedek is the king and priest of Jerusalem. And it does not say he's the pagan king. He knows the most high God. Jesus Christ is called after the order of Melchizedek, which makes sense because Melchizedek was not just a priest. He was also what? King. That means he has a territory that he rules over, right? Does Christ have a territory he rules over? Yes. What is that? Newsflash, it's more than Israel. The whole earth and the whole heavens and everything in between, right? He is king and he is priest. In fact, let's turn there. Let's just check that out real quick. Hebrews chapter 7. Let's go over there and we'll read about... Melchizedek in the New Testament, too. Let's pick up chapter 6. Let's, let's start at verse 19, so we can kind of get the context here. Chapter 6, verse 19 of Hebrews says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls, a hope that enters into the interplace from behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So how great this man was to whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That's the Levites. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he still lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid the tithes through Abraham. That is to say this. Even these guys who are priests in Israel pay tithes and tribute to Melchizedek because they were still within their father, Abraham. They paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And it goes on to tell us more about it. It says that the perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, 
What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Verse 14, for it's evident our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Who is he talking about? Christ. Yeah. Who has power to lay down his life and take it back up? Nobody that I know other than Jesus. For it is witnessed of him, quote, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law. That would be the Mosaic law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant who's the guarantor of your covenant jesus who is a priest and king forever according to the order of melchizedek 